It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. As I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This morning was a cold and chilly morning for us Miamians, right? I don't know if any of you ladies pulled out your Ugg boots and scarves. Guys, if you did that, it would be a little weird, but uh, I understand. And uh, I was thinking of uh, Pastor Ken. He was here a couple weeks ago. He's from Bangor, Maine. So I looked at the weather up there. Last night, it was a balmy negative 2 degrees uh, in Orrington, Maine. This morning was 8 degrees in the morning. So we have little to complain about. But he was talking about the cold, and he said living there in Maine, the cold was basically like a siege on their home. That it was constantly a battle inside the house to keep the heat and keep the warmth, and the cold is trying any way it can to get inside the house. Any door that's a little bit too open, any window cracked, anything at all, the cold's trying to get in and freeze the pipes and destroy everything around them, everything within their home. So it's a constant battle to keep the house warm and to keep everything in order. And as we've been going through these churches, what we see is that there's a siege in our lives. And sin is constantly at the door. Sin is constantly trying to find its way into our lives and into our homes. And it's unrelenting. It never stops. Any crack in the seal, any open window, any way, sin is trying to get inside of our homes. And once we allow it into our homes, if we allow it to find a refuge in our home, then in turn the Spirit of God sets its sights on our lives and now God is set in battle array and he begins a siege on us. But not on us personally, but the sin lurking within our hearts. In 2 Samuel, we've been going uh, through 2 Samuel with the young adults and we looked at this man named Sheba and he tried to overthrow the kingdom. So then David's mighty men, they go after him. Joab, they get Sheba in the city. He's hiding there. He sets a siege upon a nation, a city in Israel. And a wise woman comes out and says, why are you trying to kill fellow Israelites? Why are you doing this? And he says, hey, I have no qualms with you. I have qualms with Sheba lurking inside of your city walls. Again, I would, this is word pictures that I love to be able to see this, right, or be a part of this. She says, hold on, wait one second, I'll cut off his head and I'll be right back. That's basically what she says. <laughs> and then God's word says she literally took the head of Sheba and threw it over the city walls. I guess Joab catches it, maybe he dropped it, right, we don't know. But he catches the head and he goes along his merry way. John Trapp, he says, we can make a spiritual analogy out of Sheba and his rebellion and his refuge in the city of Abel. Every man's chest is a city enclosed. Every sin is a traitor that lurks within those walls. And God calls for Sheba's head. 
Neither has he any quarrel with us personally, but for our sin. If we love the head of our traitor above the life of our own soul, we shall justly perish in the vengeance. Again, if we are living a life of sin, if our compromise has led to corruption, then God himself sets himself in battle array against us. And again, not against us personally, but the sins that we are trying to hide, the justifications, the corruptions that we are protecting in our lives. John Trapp says, It were happy if all such traitors might hop headless. Again, Jesus says something similar, right? It's better for you to cut off your hand and get into heaven with a hook for a hand than to spend eternity in hell with both hands. Jesus says it's better for you to enter heaven with an eye patch and pluck out your eye that causes you to sin than to spend eternity in hell with both eyes. And we've seen this progression. The last church, they were a compromising church. They allowed members within their church that believed in other doctrines to stay put in their church and spread this corruption, these lies. And as we allow compromise to rule and reign in our lives, it always leads to corruption. But back to verse 18, it all begins with this city, Thyatira. It's a small city. It's the smallest city of these seven churches, and it's the smallest church, yet it's the longest letter written to any of the seven churches. An ancient elder named Pliny, he dismissed Thyatira with an almost contemptuous phrase. He said, Thyatira is like other unimportant cities. Tiny city, not that important. No one really cared about it. However, Jesus was not writing to the seven most famous cities. He wasn't writing to the seven biggest cities. He wasn't writing to the top seven cities to find shawarma or fish and chips or anything like that. Jesus, using the number of completion, seven, is writing to seven historical churches whose problems would relate to every single church throughout the rest of history. And also the order of these seven churches goes exactly in line with church history as well. And finally, as we've looked at it earlier, it applies to every church in history, it applies to church history, and then it applies to each believer within those churches. We should be praying this morning saying, Lord, how is my life like the life of the church of Thyatira? It was a small city, yet it was very industrious. It had many trade guilds, and each of these trade guilds had its own God. Today, we don't have trade guilds, but we have unions. And that's what it would look like today. It would be different unions. However, each union would have their own God. Most of the unions today, they have a God too. It's called money and power, right? But these unions would have each of their own gods. In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, you can just write it down. This is the first Christian convert in Europe, and it's a certain woman named Lydia, and she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. So this woman, Lydia, is from there. She would make purple. Not going to go into that. If you want to hear more about how they made purple, you can listen to uh, the C.C. Filiap and Joe Foe. She says that they would like squeeze a mollusk or an oyster or something, and as you squeeze the life out of it, a little bit of purple would come out. However, this purple would be likened more to a dark crimson. And the color of the Roman Empire was red, was crimson. So they would use this on all of their fabrics. However, there were not just unions of coloring, but there was unions of wool, unions of leather, a bronze union, a cloth union, a potter's union, a baker's union, a slave trader's union. And these unions would have meetings. And oftentimes it would start off with a drink offering poured out to the God of that trade guild. After that, they would sacrifice an offering to the God, and now they would partake and eat of that offering that was sacrificed to other gods. As we've gone through the New Testament, we know that's a big no-no for believers. They would then break bread with the other members of the guild, probably talk shop, probably discuss trade deals, probably discuss how they can further each other's business. However, the alcohol and the idolatry would always lead to immorality. The drunkenness at these guild meetings would lead to celebration and sensual lusts, Sexual misconduct and oftentimes would end with sexual orgies. We would say it's easy. Just don't go to these meetings, right? Easy and simple. However, not participating in these guild meetings would leave you on the outside looking in. 
You'd be that black sheep. You would be ostracized and banished from the group members within that trade. However, we as believers need to remember idolatry always leads to immorality. Idolatry, however small or insignificant we may think it is. And for many of us today, we don't have a little idol within our homes. We're not offering a sacrifice on our backyard to an idol and then breaking bread and eating it later on. But oftentimes our idol, right, our idolatry is ourself. We're serving ourselves, and whatever I feel like, whatever I want, whatever I desire, that is what I do. I don't feel like going to church today, so I'm not going to go today. I serve myself. I don't serve the Lord. I feel like doing this. I want to do this. This is what I think. It's serving self. Sometimes we put our family, and that becomes an idol. I'm just scared of what my family is going to do. I'm just scared if I make this stance in my home, what is that going to make my kids do? We can take God and move him to the side. And now we're more worried about, hey, what is my family going to think? Money can become an idol, right? I'm going to have to skip out on church because I need to just make more money. I need to make more money. It could be comfort. It could be niceness. We have idolatry rampant within our nation. However, we may not have little idols in the back of our homes. And we, we know these meetings, right? That Friday happy hour meeting with all the coworkers after a long work week. The boss says he'll even pay for you, right? I think they have fajitas and different things there too, right? And they invite you to go out there. What are you going to do? I remember at my previous job in the world, our human resource managers, one was a guy and one was a woman, they would go to strip clubs for their lunch breaks. Our human resource managers, right? Again, it's no different than the current meetings today, the union meetings, the playing the game at work, the promiscuity, the garbage talking, the gossiping, right? The text thread and all the insanity that goes on there. It may cost us to not be a part of those meetings, but we serve God and not man. And we have to be careful. Oftentimes we are serving the God of niceness, right? I don't want to say no. I know that's what they believe on gender, but I, I don't want to say anything. I don't, want, I don't want to cause any waves, right? I know what they're saying about marriage, but I, don't, I know this is the way they live. But got to be careful with that. Our saying no puts a light on their immorality, and the world doesn't like that. The world wants us to partake of what they're doing and applaud it or be nice and allow it to work in our lives slowly but surely. We could turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us here some of the characteristics we are supposed to have as believers. And niceness is not necessarily one of them. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor... How shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Again, we are called to be salt and be light. And I don't know, when was the last time you messed with salt, right? I think that guy Salt Bay is not so famous anymore, right? But salt itself, it, it doesn't really say anything. It doesn't really do anything. It just sits there and then you sprinkle it on meat or you put it in your food and it causes saltiness, right? Light itself, it doesn't make that much noise, in fact, when light is making a noise, the ballast is messed up or something's off with the electricity. Something is wrong when light is making noise. And the way we are salt and light is by simply saying no and standing in our convictions. You don't have to give a huge reason why. And we should also not emulate the world, how the world gets when you challenge their God and their idol, that they begin to foam at the mouth and they're screaming and they're standing in whatever truth they have. Simply say no. Hey, I don't believe that's what gender is. No, I'm not going to go to the after party. No, I'm not going to go to that work Halloween party. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just not going. Be that salt and be that light. 
And sometimes we try to play a game in our mind. We want to compromise and we think, if I compromise, it's going to open more doors. If I just compromise on this one thing, it's going to open more doors with my coworkers, right? However, that's not what we see in the Bible. You see, Joseph did not play games with Potiphar's wife. In Genesis 39, verse 9, he tells her, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And Joseph runs, he flees. And what causes Potiphar's wife to get so angry? The fact that he stood for righteousness. If he would have slept with her, she would have been fine. She would have been okay with it. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? In Daniel 3, verse 16 through 18, these three men stood against King Nebuchadnezzar and his command to worship the idol that he built. And here's the difficult thing. Were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the only Jewish men that were brought into Babylon? The whole entire nation was overthrown, and now all the wise young men were brought into the nation of Babylon, except only three stood against this idolatry. Right? Oftentimes we're at work and we say no, and how do they respond? But this other person says they go to church, and they say it's okay. This other person says they're a Christian, and they say it's okay. Who are we going to be? Right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answer Nebuchadnezzar, and they tell the king of Babylon, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We're not bowing down. We don't have to tell you why we don't have to bow down. They continue and they say, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. What an unkind thing to say, right? What a not nice thing to say. However, these men were salt and light even if it costed them their lives. And we as Christians should be salt and light, even if it costs us our jobs, even if it costs us relationship with family members. We need to be that salt and light. Again, the progression. Ephesus, they left their first love. They continued in religiosity, but they completely forgot about Jesus. The church of Smyrna, they suffered intense persecution, and that actually drew them back to their love for Christ. Pergamos, we looked at them last week, they were known for their compromise. Out of love, out of being inclusive, right, they would allow people with bad doctrine to sit in their churches and never feel convicted. And finally, here in Thyatira, they were known for their corruption, now it's not just a few people with bad doctrine, but now the majority of the church and even the pulpit of the church has bought into the lies of the enemy. G.K. Chesterton, he says, tolerance is the virtue of a man without conviction. Tolerance is the virtue of a man without conviction. Right? Doesn't our world lie to us today? They've taken tolerance, and now they take tolerance, and they say, this is what love means. Love means that you tolerate, right? You tolerate what other people are doing. However, I don't think any husband or wife wants to be tolerant without other women or men treat their spouse, right? Honey, the, the guy at work, he started copping a feel. He started kissing me, so I, I wanted to be tolerant, right? I didn't want to hurt his feelings. I don't know how he grew up. I don't know what happened to him when he was a kid. So I just let it happen, right? So I kissed him back. I just I wanted to be tolerant, right? Honey, I don't know what happened. That lady, she took off her clothes. She got on top of me. I don't know how she grew up. I don't know what, what baggage she has. I have to be kind. I have to be loving. I have to be tolerant in the day and age we live in. You see, when we have conviction or when we truly love someone, we don't tolerate very much. That tolerance sort of goes out the window, right? And we should have conviction within our lives after all that Jesus has done for us. Back to Revelation 2, quite the long intro. It says, These things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. This is the only time in the book of Revelation where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God. Oftentimes, his favorite name in the book of Revelation is the Lamb of God. But Jesus is reminding this church of Thyatira of his deity, that Jesus is God. David Guzik, he points out that in Jewish 
culture, to be a son of a thing meant you had the nature of that very thing. In Isaiah 57 verse 3, it says, you son of sorceresses meant that they had the nature of a sorceress. The sons of thunder in Mark 3.17 meant that John and his brother James had a nature like thunder. So the Son of God has the divine nature. He has the nature of God himself. We'll look at it later on in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 through 12. There it says, The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Again, Jesus is fully God. He's fully God. And now he's coming With this siege against the church of Thyatira. He says that his eyes are like a flame of fire. Today we would say Jesus has x-ray vision, right? He's able to see through everything. Not even lead blocks his vision. He's able to see through everything. And not only does he see our works like he's told every single one of the churches. But he's also able to see our heart and our reasoning behind it. Again, we live in a day and age that we don't know who's telling us the truth, right? If I could be honest, within the past two years, every news clip, every newspaper article, every magazine, every social media, I'm like, I don't even know if they're telling me the truth. I don't know if I could believe them or not. And then when we see some of the evil in our world, it's like, what's the heartbeat behind this? Are they just that evil? Are they just that naive? Are they that stupid? Right? Why are these things happening? Jesus is able to see all the works that are going on on this planet, and he's also able to see the reasons behind it. Then he says his feet are like fine brass. This speaks of Jesus' purity and steadfastness in judgment. There is no curve. There is no respecter of persons. You are either a part of the bride of Christ or you are not. You are either sinning Or you're being obedient to the Lord. Oftentimes we make excuses for sins based on someone's life or life experience. Sin is sin. And Jesus gives us the power to overcome our fears, our failures, and our past. Sin is still sin no matter what's happened to you in your life. And judgment always begins, as 1 Peter 4.17 tells us, in the house of God. Here Jesus is beginning judgment within this church in Thyatira. And later on it will continue to spread around all the earth. In verse 19, Jesus commends them. He says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. This this church kind of had it all, right? If Calvary Chapel Miami got a Google review that said, man, the works, the love, the service, the faith, and the patience of Calvary Chapel Miami are amazing. And they're even growing. It's more than when they first started. That sounds incredible. They were a loving church. They had it all. They served their community. They were helping the members within the church. And they were patient and enduring in all their work for the Lord. It wasn't like they served the Lord one time and then they stopped. They continually did it. And then their works, their love, their service, their faith, and their endurance was actually growing. It was growing. It wasn't, yeah, back in my day, I did this, that, or the third. Their works for God was growing. And that should be every single believer. That's one thing we should take from the church of Thyatira and look at our own lives. Is my love for Christ abounding? Is my work for Christ abounding? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Finally, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. We should be abounding. Do you love Jesus more today than you ever have? Are you in your devotional? Are you in your Bible more than ever before? Are you serving more than ever before? We are called to abound more and more. We shouldn't be saying, oh, yeah, I used to serve the Lord like this. Oh, yeah, I remember that one time I went on a mission trip. Yeah, I remember when I used to serve in kiddos ministry. 
That's not what God's word tells us. We should be abounding more and more. Right? I think we've all been there. We're trying to work hard and do something. And then an older guy comes to us and says, hey, when I was in high school, I used to bench 450 pounds, right? You've been there. How, how to heart do you take there? They're used to, right? Even Ken Gray say, man, I become the old man that says I used to do this and I used to do that, right? It's different when someone is leading by example saying, look at what I'm doing today. And that should be us within the church. Look at what I'm doing today for the Lord. Follow me as I follow Christ. Paul, at the end of his life, he didn't say, hey, I'm just going to cruise. I've done enough. I've served him enough. I'm just going to cruise and relax here. He goes, no, I'm pressing on. I'm still going towards the upward calling. My whole life is a drink offering unto the Lord. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. I don't know if you've ever gotten that letter in the mail from university that you applied to, right? Tells you how amazing and incredible you are. And then at the end, sorry, we didn't accept you. This is kind of the feel that we get here. An incredible church, so many things going well. And yet Jesus says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You see, everything was incredible in the church of Thyatira except for where it counts. The Bible study. Everything else was right in the church of Thyatira, but their Bible study was completely off. And if you ever are called to another church, if you go to another church, you move to another city, the Bible study has to be the main reason why you're attending that church. Oftentimes we look at church, hey, what's happening in the kiddos' ministry, right? Do they have a Noah's Ark drawn on the wall or not, right? (laughs) What are they doing in the youth? What's the cafe like? What's this like? No, it's all attached to the study of God's word. The church of Thyatira was allowing a woman who was a self-proclaimed prophetess to teach, and the Bible calls her a Jezebel. Again, interesting note, the day and age we live in, there's a lot of churches that say that women pastors are fine and dandy. This is one of the examples we get of a woman teaching the church at large in the New Testament. And it's not that great of an example. However, back to Jezebel, was that her real name? Was that her real name? Last week we saw that they had the works and spirit of Balaam. We don't believe that her actual name was Jezebel. At the 9 a.m. we had a baby dedication and you don't dedicate too many baby Jezebels, right? You don't dedicate too many. Let's pray for Judas right now. We're going to lift him up and pray for him. We're going to pray for little Adolf here and uh, we pray that God really uses him for his might. No, those names sort of disappear throughout history because one or two bad apples or seeds ruin the name. However, Jezebel was the daughter of a pagan priest and was married to Ahab. And in a season when each king of Israel was messed up and wicked, Ahab was more messed up and more wicked than all the other messed up and wicked kings of Israel. He allowed Jezebel, this daughter of a pagan priest, he married her. And then now Jezebel led Israel into immorality. Not by saying, hey, let's stop worshiping your God. But instead Jezebel said, let's serve both of them together. Hey, it's okay. Let's be inclusive. Hey, we'll worship Baal. You'll worship the Lord. It's all okay. We can even worship them both at the same time. This is the woman that had so many prophets of Baal where Elijah would challenge them and they'd be burnt to a crisp. Later on, she would tell Elijah that she was going to go and kill him and sent Elijah running away. And we see here that she called herself a prophetess. And Jesus warned the disciples, and he warns us today, of false prophets, false teachers. Unfortunately, they don't come with a, hi, my name's so-and-so, I'm a false prophet name tag, right? And make it a lot simpler. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus actually warns us, he says, beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Again, we have to be careful. Not everyone who says they're a prophet or a prophetess or a man or woman of God is actually a man or woman of God. What is their diet? What is their diet? Is there diet on the word of God, the work of God, as Jesus said, right, the will of God? Or is there diet the people of God and their wallets? Again, that is a false prophet. In Matthew 24, verse 11, Jesus speaking of the end of the age, he says, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. 
Again, we have to be careful just because someone's on social media and they have a huge following does not mean they actually are a man or woman of the Lord. Or within the past few weeks, I saw this guy spitting on his hand and rubbing it in a guy's face in the front of the church service saying that they got to sell their brand new cars and give to the ministry. Be careful. Be careful. The churches and pastors that you're following on social media or YouTube, I don't know how many people watch TBN anymore. I think you know that's a big warning sign, right? But be careful. Are they actually teaching from the Word of God? This Jezebel was teaching and seducing my servants, right, the, the servants of Jesus, to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Some scholars even think that this Jezebel was the actual pastor's wife. And what was she doing? She was dumbing down the significance of spiritual holiness and physical sexual holiness. She was dumbing down the significance of not going and attending these guild meetings. Hey, it's okay. You want to be able to go to those meetings and speak into the lives of those people. It's okay if you drink with them. It's okay if you mingle with them. It's okay if you sin with them. It'll open doors later on. She was watering this down. Again, we know it would cost them their very livelihoods, but she told them that God wanted to take care of them. God wanted to see them healthy and wealthy and full of goodness, right? Everyone else is doing it. You have to provide for your family. How do you expect to get ahead in life? That's what this woman Jezebel was doing. Many scholars believe that this also may have been tied to the work of the, the Gnostics, right? We've spoken about them since 2 Peter, 1 John, we've been speaking of these Gnostics, saying that God only cares about your spirit. Jesus was a spirit. He was never human flesh. That's a lie, but that's what they would say. So God only cares about your spirit. You could sin however you want, and God doesn't really care about that. You could do whatever you want in your flesh. At the end of the day, God only cares about your spirit. It's a lie. But today we get these lies told to us, right? In the end, love wins. In the end, the love of God is so much that there's no hell. No one really dies and goes to hell. God's going to save everyone. And we just don't see that in Scripture. David Guzik, he says, Christians were expected to stand in the face of this kind of pressure. One ancient Christian named Tertullian wrote about how Christians made their living in trades connected to pagan idolatry. A painter might find more work in a pagan temple. Or a sculptor might be hired to make a statue of a pagan god. They would justify this by saying, this is my living and I must live. To this, Tertullian would answer, must you live? Do you really have to live? Right? What a piercing thought to each and every one of us. Are we serving the God of comfort so much that we're doing whatever it takes to live? When Jesus says, hey, you got to pick up my cross daily, deny yourself, crucify yourself, and follow me. We have to be careful with this. This God of niceness, this God of comfort, this God of, oh, I have to live, so what else am I going to do? Jesus, he was condemning the false teacher, but this type of behavior is expected from a false teacher. The person who Jesus is really calling out, he says, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman. Jesus is condemning the leader and the leadership of the church of Thyatira for allowing this to go on. It's the tolerance of the church leadership that was allowing this Jezebel to teach and lead others into adultery. Both sexual adultery and spiritual adultery. Damien Kyle, he says, why was Jezebel so powerful in ancient Israel? Because Ahab had no backbone. Whatever Jezebel said, Ahab did. Ahab just wanted to keep the peace. Ahab just wanted to be loving. Ahab just wanted to be nice. And why did the Jezebel and the church of Thyatira changed the hearts of so many people, weak leadership. Again, if we are a leader of anyone, if we are in leadership, if we're a dad or a mom here, your leadership will either bless your family or is going to hurt your family a whole lot. Don't be that weak leader. Be that man or woman that stands for the things of God. This church of Thyatira in the church history type of calendar, points to the time in church history where Constantine made Rome and the church one and the same. 
This was the birth of the Catholic Church where many pagan practices were brought in together with the church. And many unbiblical practices found their way to drop roots inside the Roman Catholic Church. And maybe you're here, maybe you're Roman Catholic, maybe you were raised in that church. Ah, is this guy going to talk bad about the Roman Catholics? Yes, but don't worry, next week we'll talk bad about the Protestants and what they've done wrong, right? (laughs) Every church in church history, Calvary Chapel included, has many flaws and many mistakes. But in the church history gambit, right, right now this is what's going on. The Pope, they said that he had equal power to Scripture and God himself. Found nowhere in scripture. They said Mary was another way to salvation. Another intercessor between us and Jesus Christ. Found nowhere in scripture. They said Mary ascended into heaven. Found nowhere in scripture. That Mary was a virgin till the day she died. Scripture tells us she had many other children. I think we all know that's not the truth, right? That doesn't work that way. They created purgatory. Found nowhere in scripture. And this Purgatory invited this idea of indulgences where people would pay their way towards forgiveness of sins. They'd pay their way out of past sins, present sins, and future sins. Martin Luther, he said it came to a point where the disgust filled his heart because men would come to the Catholic Church on a Friday paying for their sins later on, saying because they knew when they'd go out to drink, they may fall into sin, they may commit adultery, and they didn't want to have to die and go to hell while doing that. So they'd pay their way out of that. Church leadership began to dress different and higher than the normal people. They created infant baptism, found nowhere in Scripture. Rosary and prayer beads found nowhere in Scripture. Confessing sins, past, present, and future, to priests, not found in Scripture. And probably saddest of all, they began to burn Bibles, not allowing the common man to read the Bible on their own. They believed that Scripture was only for the priest to interpret and the priest to give to the people. This is what started the Dark Ages. Was normal human beings, blue-collar people, not being able to read the Bible for themselves. It got so dark that the Roman Catholic Church actually began to arrest fathers and mothers that were teaching the bible to their kids again a dark age in church history many dark ages in church history because it's filled with people who are not perfect what should we do with all this right is everyone in the roman catholic church bad no not at all There are many believers in the Roman Catholic Church that probably put many of us to shame in their love for Lord and their service to the Lord. However, we need to look at our lives and say, God, do I have habits that I say are thus saith the Lord that are found nowhere in Scripture? Parents, are we telling our kids, hey, this is what the Bible says, and yet it's nowhere in Scripture? We have to be careful with that, right? And these little things, they slip into our hearts, right? I always crack up around uh, Resurrection Sunday and Good Friday. Or people ask, hey, can I eat meat? Am I allowed to eat meat or not, right? Can I use a hammer on Friday? Is that, is that holy? Is that unholy, right? And we begin to add these things to our spiritual lives that are found nowhere in Scripture. We have to be so careful with that, right? I was joking around at the 9 a.m. If we ever change the chairs here to a different color, are we going to freak out? Because Calvary Chapel, Miami has always known blue chairs, right? Thus saith the Lord, you have to have blue chairs. Jesus walked on water, so we want to walk in the church. So that's why we need blue chairs. We're getting black chairs. What's happening, right? We have to be careful with that. Oftentimes, we begin to add our rut or our habits to spiritual things, and they have nothing to do with one another. I think one of the most difficult things for us is the way we were raised, right? My dad acted like this. My mom acted like this. So that's biblical, right? Got to look at Scripture. The way we discipline our kids, the way we talk to one another, the way we act, the roles of a husband and a wife, are they biblical? We got to look at that in our own lives. So this is not to just throw rocks at the Roman Catholic Church. This is to look in our lives and say, Lord, am I attaching preconceived notions that are not biblical to my life? Verse 21, scary verse, it says, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Again, God in his amazing grace even gave time for this Jezebel to repent. But instead she hardened her heart. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, it says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. 
And there's a certain line that no man knows where God's grace and mercy sort of stops. And now we take on the full brunt, the full reaping of what we've sown to our sins. You see that in the life of Samson. Over and over and over again, he'd be living for the things of the world, and then he'd go and do a mighty act for God. Over and over and over again. Till one day he got up just like all the other times, and yet the Spirit of God was no longer with him. The Spirit of God departed from him. We could think of David with Bathsheba. A year had already passed by. David thought he got away with his sin. Hey, I could keep serving the Lord. This is water under the bridge. Uriah's gone. I've taken care of Bathsheba. We have this baby on the way. And then Nathan came into the king's home. Again, we have to be careful. In each and every one of our lives, do not take the grace and mercy of God as his applause and okayness of your sins and immorality. Get right with the Lord. Verse 22 continues this thought. He says, indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. This sickbed could have just been directly connected to chastisement, trying to get these people to repent for their sins. It could have also been STDs and other venereal diseases attached to their sexual misconduct and the orgies that they were taking place and happening. And there's a warning to every church attendee here that if you do not repent, you will go through great tribulation. And that's why I use the word a church attendee. You see, we have to be careful. If we have not repented from our sins and it's who we are, it's our identity, it's what we do on a habitual basis, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's what the Bible says. It's all over the epistles in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Run through these quickly. Again, if you want any verses, any notes afterwards, just let me know or call the office. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery and fornication. It goes through a whole list after that. But verse 21 says, just as I told you in time past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 through 5, it says, But fornication and all uncleanness, covetousness, let it not even be named among you. Verse 5, for this you know that no fornicator or unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Finally, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 through 7, it tells us, Therefore put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Again, he says that's who you once were. And here he says, the wrath of God coming upon the sons of disobedience. We looked at that earlier, right? Whoever you were a son of, that meant that was your character. That was your practice. So if we are sons and daughters of God, we need to be acting like Jesus Christ. We need to be living and acting in holiness. But if our lives are continually acting in fornication and uncleanness and idolatry, you don't have the character of God in your life. You have the character of sin in your life. And sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 23, it says, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. Again, it's only the sons and daughters of God. Only the children of God will inherit life and life eternally. Everyone else will inherit death and death eternally. We can think of Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, we should be looking into our lives, looking into the lives of our kids, right? So often don't we say, ah, oh, they're a good person, right? My kids, they're good kids, right? I have to be careful with that. Many good people with good intentions are in hell for all of eternity. Many bad people, saved by grace, are in heaven for all of eternity. Again, we need to have this oneness with Jesus Christ. 
and the warning to us that if they don't repent, they will die with death, right? What a terrible way to go, with death itself. We may laugh at that, but John Trapp says, All men die, but not all are killed with death. Oh, it is a woeful thing to be killed with death. That's what we just read in Matthew 10, 28, that we're not only just dying once if we don't have a walk in relationship with Jesus Christ, but we're dying, and then we're dying for all of eternity. Again, a brutal way to go. And there are certain sins that lead to death. God is warning them. Jesus is warning this church to purify not only this church, but for all other churches to be purified as well. He wanted to use them as an example that all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, John says that there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. There are certain sins, again, the line, we don't know where that line is, where God says hey, it's better to take them out than allow them to keep living in this manner. I don't know if you've ever said, man, I wish the church today was like the church back in the book of Acts, right? Anyone ever say that before or heard someone else say that before? A couple of us. It'd be a scary thing to live right, in, the, in the days of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, there's a, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And there's another man by the name of Barnabas, and he sells his property, and he donates all the money to the church. And Ananias and Sapphira, wanting to look like they were just as holy as Barnabas, they sell their house, but they only give half of it to the church, but they say they gave all of it to the church. They were hypocrites. They were wanting to look more holy than they really were. And first, the husband, he drops dead in the middle of service. Afterwards, the wife comes in. Maybe she was a little later. Maybe he went to the 9. Then she came to the 11, right? <laughs> Peter asks her, hey, is this what happened? And then she drops dead. And then in Acts chapter 5, verse 11, it says, So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Again, God will get our attention and the attention of others through the consequences of our actions. God wants to get our attention, but sometimes he'll use getting our attention to get other people's attention. Again, imagine being at Calvary Chapel, Miami. We have an altar call. Hey, anyone who doesn't want to get right with the Lord, right? Everybody comes up to pray, and there's a handful of people that don't come up to pray. And as we turn around, they just drop dead, right? We'd all be taking our walk with the Lord a lot more serious, right? Lord, reveal to me any besetting sin. Lord, reveal to me whatever's going on. God was going to use this to get the attention of the church of Thyatira and all other churches. Right? I, I know no one here, but sometimes right, I'm driving a little fast and I see red and blue lights and they pull a car over in front of me. And what does that do in my heart? Time to slow down. right? Time, time to relax. I see the consequences in other people and that makes me relax. Right? I don't know what kind, if you had brothers and sisters, I don't know what kind of a kid you were. There's some kids that see their brothers and sisters getting disciplined, and they sort of like just turn away and say, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to go down that path. And that's what Jesus is saying he's going to do with this church of Thyatira. He says, and I will give each, to each one of you according to your works. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, here Paul tells us, he says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Again, all of our life's work will be judged by Jesus Christ. Our entrance into heaven is only in and through Jesus Christ. He's the foundation. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. That's our way into heaven. But then after that, we should have works attached to our salvation. And then what Christ is going to do with that x-ray vision, he's going to put all of our life's work, 10 years, 
20 years, 60 years, 80 years of life's work, he's going to put there on top of that foundation, and he's going to pierce through it, and only what's done for Christ is going to last. Everything else is going to be burnt to a crisp. Family, what are you going to have there? What are you going to have to show for your life's work? Right? Isn't it heartbreaking when you're working on something for hours and hours and hours only to realize this was the wrong thing, right? You work on a puzzle for hours and hours and hours, and then someone cleans the house and just pours it all into a bucket, right? It's painful. How much more painful will it be to live a life for 20, 40, 60, 80 years only to realize it was a waste? Yeah, you're saved. Again, this is one of the things I say to the young adults. I don't understand, right? I'm a pastor. I don't understand how there's no weeping in heaven. Because to me, any believer here that sees all their life's work consumed, burnt to a crisp, nothing to give back to Christ after all he's given to us, I don't understand how there's no weeping. However, that's what God's word tells us. So to each of us, why are we doing the work we do for the Lord? Are you doing anything for the Lord? Or is your life just about you? Do you think Jesus saved you just to give you a white picket fence and a dog and two and a half kids and the perfect life? Or do you realize he saved you for a relationship with him, and then to draw other people to that same relationship with him. Verse 24, Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. There's a couple of things for us to pick up on here. One is that there's always a remnant in any church. There's a remnant here. In this church of Thyatira, as messed up, as jacked up as it is, there are some there who have not bought into this doctrine. And Jesus says, hey, I'm not going to put any burdens on you, but hold fast what you have until I come. Here, Jesus is also warning about those who have known the depths of Satan. And we should always be skeptical when someone comes and tells us, someone pulls us to the side while we're alone and tells us about biblical insight that we don't know about. That they have some deeper, some new, some deeper perspective into the things of God. That should be warning alarms in our minds and in our hearts. David Guzik, he says, various Gnostic groups said that they knew the deep things of Satan. Right? If you only buy this book, If you only watch this YouTube video, if you only watch this documentary, right, it's real. Nobody paid for it. It doesn't have any opinions on the side. It's just real. If you watch this, then you'll see the true and deep things that are going on. The ancient Christian writer Tertullian said, if you asked a Gnostic about their cosmic mysteries, they furrowed their brow and said, it's deep. It's very deep. Tertullian says it may be deep, but it was a deep pit into a dangerous pit. Again, we have to be careful just trying to seek God in our knowledge because that's trying to seek God in our pride. We have to be careful with that. We have to be so careful. In yesterday's Bible reading in Matthew chapter 18, it tells us about the mindset that we should have if we want to grow in the kingdom of God. Matthew 18 verse 1 There was a kid crying right at this time. It worked out perfectly. We didn't get that here at the 11. But it says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus, he calls a little child to him, and he set him in the midst of them. And he said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Again, it's, it's by faith. It's having that childlike faith within God and the things of God. And it's willing to let go of the things that perhaps we don't understand. Realizing he's God and I'm not. Again, heaven for all of eternity, we're going to be learning more and more and more about God and who he is. And it's never going to get boring. It's never going to get boring for millennia, learning more and more about who Christ is. Right? Do your children have existential crises, right, on how you're going to pay the bills? Does your four-year-old come up to you and say, Dad, how are you going to pay the bills this month, right? 
Is the electricity going to be up higher because we're using the heater, or is it going to be lower because we're not using the air conditioning? Is it, do your kids come up to you like that? Dad, the refrigerator's empty. I don't know if we're going to make it. I don't know if we're going to survive. I just don't understand. I was watching the news, all these things, food shortage. What's going to happen, Dad? It just doesn't work that way. Every morning it's crying out to mom or dad, hey, can you make me some chocolate milk, right? And that's how we should start every day, crying out to our Father in heaven. Lord, Lord, would you give me today just the daily bread that I need today? Lord, would you give me just what I need? And trusting in him. We don't have to understand at all. There's going to be difficulties in life, tragedies in life that we will not understand, things that we can't fathom. But will we have that mindset of a child? Verse 26, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Once again, we see Jesus telling a church they need to be overcomers. Don't be overcome by the things, the thought process, the mold, the lies that this world is trying to squeeze you into. But instead, we must fight and be faithful to do well until we see Jesus face to face. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9 tells us, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Again, keep putting the work in. You had an off day, you forgot to read the Bible, you messed up on the 30 days of fasting, don't go to CC's and blow it all out, right? That's, that's not the way to go. Continue fighting, continue being faithful, even when you're weary, even when you're tired, right? It's the end of January, I don't know how your New Year's resolutions are going, however, I don't know if that's a sore subject for some of you, right? But diving into the exact opposite is not going to help that resolution, it's not going to help that plan. And oftentimes we mess up, we fall into a sin, and then we say, ah, forget it. It's never going to change. And we go back to, like Peter, I'm going to go back to fishing. Don't do that. Stay faithful. Stay in the grind. Stay in the Word. Stay with the people of God. And if we do that, if we're those overcomers, one day we're going to rule and reign with Him. Right? Romans tells us that if we die with Him, we'll resurrect with Him. And if we resurrect with Him, we will rule with Christ and the world to come. Verse 27, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. We read that in Psalm 2. And they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. Again, this is so interesting to me. I don't hear it so much from ladies, but oftentimes I hear men talking about these huge mega problems, right? Man, how do we solve what's going on in Russia and in Ukraine, right? How are we going to fix our nation? How are we going to fix that party or that party? Our government, how are we going to fix these big things? How are we going to fix them? Be faithful to the little things right in front of you. The little human beings right in front of you, you men, be faithful to pour into them. The other young men here at this church, be faithful to pour into them. Because if we're faithful in that, one day, that verse 27, when we come back with Christ to rule and reign, Jesus is going to crush all injustice. One day it says he's going to break them to pieces like a potter's vessel. We're not going to do that by just sitting around and thinking about it and allowing our kids to go to the wayside. Thinking about these huge problems and yet investing nothing into our church. That's not going to do jack squat. You want to pour into saving the nation, saving the world, pour into your sons and daughters or create spiritual sons and daughters. That's the way to do it because one day we will return with Christ. And that day, he will right every wrong and destroy every single injustice. Verse 28, I will give him the morning star. There's two ways to look at this. In Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus, he says that he himself is the morning star. So the more faithful we are to Christ, the more he reveals himself to us. Again, what a joy, what a hope. The other way to look at this is the morning star. It's one of the planets that right before the day dawns, it's one of the last lights left in the sky. And to who, he who's overcoming, we will be given the rapture. That right before everything changes, right before the wrath of God is poured out, those who are in Christ and faithful will be taken out of here. Part of our reward is more of Jesus Part of our faithfulness, being a true son or daughter of God, is by being raptured and taken into heaven. Verse 29, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Right, we've had enough ear jokes Sunday after Sunday. This is for each and every one of us. Each and every one of us should look at these verses and say, Lord, how does this apply to my life? A couple of be carefuls. Be careful that you are not leading others into sin like this Jezebel. Matthew 18 verse 6 says, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it will be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Be careful that you aren't leading others to sin. Be careful. Be careful that your lack of a backbone is allowing a Jezebel to bring other Christians down. Maybe even the Christians in your own home. Ezekiel 22 verse 30 says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. Be careful. Be careful that through your inclusivity, through your niceness, through your loving others, you're allowing Jezebel to bring your life down and the life of others. That you're not saying, oh, how could we really be the only ones with the truth? How could we really be the only way to heaven? Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Finally, be careful. Be careful to not allow yourself to live just like this world and think that Jesus doesn't care about it. He cares about your lifestyle. He cares about your morals. He cares about your holiness. John 14, verse 23 through 24, Jesus answered and said to them, If, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Family, don't fall prey to the mold of this world. Don't fall prey to the lies of this world, the niceness, the being okay, the allowing these things to be permissible. Stand up. Be that salt. Be that light. Fight for your family, your sons and daughters.